Our Bible reading is taken from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to commence reading at the verse 32. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Let's hear the word of God. Reading, of course, from the most faithful and reliable translation of the Holy Scriptures, commonly known as the King James Bible. When we were in the college, the Dr. Douglas always emphasized not just the King James Bible, but the word authorized, the AV, as it's also known, the authorized version. The version that has God's stamp of approval upon it. Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very happy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell in the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own divine approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now, my text today is found in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And my theme or title today is simply called A Place Called Gethsemane. Now, it's interesting that the word Gethsemane is only found in one other place in the Bible, Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. It's a, a parallel passage. Now, let me put this text and these words into their historical setting and proper context. I want you to think of the last night of our Lord's physical life on earth. It's the end of the Passion Week. You've got to think of the events that are sacred in the life of the Lord Jesus during that week. Our Lord's public ministry is coming to a close. The cross looms large on the horizon. In fact, the very next day he would be crucified as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And on that last night, the Lord Jesus Christ with his twelve disciples ate the Passover meal. And at the table, 
the Lord Jesus spoke of his betrayal. He then initiated what is commonly called the communion feast, the Lord's Supper. After supper, he washed the feet of his disciples. And during this episode of the feet washing, the Lord Jesus told Peter that before the cock would crow three times, he would deny him three times. Judas Iscariot had left to betray Christ. And then the Lord Jesus shared what we call the upper room discourse with them, John 14 through to 16. At the end of the discourse, he offered prayer, John 17, the high priestly prayer. Then they sang a hymn together as they left the upper room. Most likely uh, the Psalms of Degrees. And as they left the upper room, I want you to picture them crossing a little brook called the Brook Kidron. And they're going in the direction of the Kidron Valley and to ascend the Mount of Olives. And just before they ascended the Mount of Olives, they entered into a place that the Bible calls Gethsemane. And in this place, there was a garden. And the Lord Jesus intentionally and specifically told eight of his disciples, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. He took with him Peter, James, and John and instructed them with a strange instruction, sit here, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And then he withdrew a little further from them and entered into prayer. Now, the Bible tells us that at this time, he was sore amazed, very heavy in heart. In fact, he said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Three times in that garden during the space of three hours, I want you to think of three one-hour prayer meetings, he prayed that this hour might pass and that this cup of what he was experiencing might be taken from him. And he added, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy done. Three times when he ceased his hour of prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He gently rebuked them. Could you not watch with me one hour? And on the third occasion, listen to what we read. It says, and he cometh a third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And you can read that there in Mark 14, verses 41 and 42. And after that, Judas and the mob arrived to arrest him. He would undergo that unjust trial during the middle of the night. And at noon the next day, he would face the horrible death of crucifixion. Now, I was thinking this week of the word Gethsemane. I prayed, Lord, give me a word from thyself. And the word Gethsemane came into my mind. And I was thinking, well, where is it located? When did the Lord Jesus and his disciples go there? Who was with Christ? Why did they go there at this time? And what does it all mean? Not only for Christ and his disciples, but what does it mean for us today? If we think of a place called Gethsemane, I want you to ask yourself, what does this place mean? If the Bible talks about a place, 
which was named Gethsemane, then that's what we want to think about this morning. And for the next 20 minutes, or 22 or 23, I want you to bear with me. I have to be quicker today because I've, I've been told uh, that, that I, I needed to uh, get things wrapped up just a wee bit quicker today, and I'll not tell you who said it. Uh, but anyway, um, I want you to think of four things, right? Gethsemane is a place associated with planning. All right? Look at verse 32. It says, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. Why this place? You see, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ was acting in a very predictable manner. He was working to a pre-described plan and pattern. Over there in John chapter 18, if you look with me at verse 2, it says there, if we think of the context, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's the high priestly prayer, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Credron, where was a garden, into the which he entered with his disciples, and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. Notice these words, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. So I want you to think of John mentioning a garden. He mentions here of Judas knowing the place. And then he adds this, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. In other words, it was a familiar place. It was as familiar a place to the Lord Jesus as Port Rush probably or Newcastle is to us. And then added to that, it was a favored place. My favorite place, where would you like to be? If I ask some of you, you might say, well, well, I would love to be in Cyprus. Or yeah, you say, well, I'd love to be in Portrush or Newcastle or, or Miami or, or Belfast or whatever. It was a favorite place. But it was also a frequented place. He often went there. It was a place for rest. And I have no doubt this place existed at the foot of the Mount of Olives and in that place was an enclosed garden with olive trees and shrubs and an olive press. And it was a place of quiet. It was a place of rest. It was a place of meditation. And it was a place that the Lord Jesus found that his footsteps found a well-worn path right into the heart of the garden. And you can visit uh, the uh, Mount of Olives site today and you'll see in the eastern side of the Mount of Olives uh, where there is a garden. Uh, and it's located uh, near the Temple Mount, uh, the very place where the Lord Jesus would be crucified for our sins. Do, do you see it coming together in the plan and in the purpose of God? Is it not significant that sin came into the world in a garden? Think of the Garden of Eden. That's where sin was conceived. The heart and mind of Satan temptation of Adam and Eve. Think of the garden tomb. That's where sin was conquered. The message is he is not here, he is risen. The doctrine of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Think of the garden of God, heaven itself. Sins completely forever cancelled out and eradicated. But think of the garden of Gethsemane. We learn that sin is very complicated. And you've got to think of the measure of the Lord's agony. You, you've got to think about the, the, the depth of the horribleness of sin. You've got to think of the measure and depth of the Lord's love. Is it not fitting that sin should be exposed? 
and, and, and Christ's work in dealing with its removal and the conquering should all begin in a garden. You've got to think of the Lord Jesus suffering this mental heaviness, this soul agony in this garden. What I'm saying to you, it's all part of Christ's not only his suffering and toning work, but it's all part of Christ's plan and purpose. See, when I thought of Gethsemane, I, I think of a mystery. And I asked myself, well, well, who can say they know what our Lord was really going through at this time? Who can really understand the depth of his suffering? Can human intellect imagine or actually begin to comprehend, take it all in? The answer is no, they can't. They can't say, oh, 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 I'm familiar with all of that. I can identify with that. And yet the mystery is it's all part of God's plan. He deliberately, voluntarily, willingly came to this familiar, favored, frequented place. You take the contrast. The upper room feast where they observed the Passover and instituted the supper, the Lord's Supper was more secretive than this place. Its disclosure was kept under wraps until near the end. And yet this garden was a very open, predictable place where he would be on the last night of his earthly life. And Judas knew where he would be. Gethsemane is a place associated with planning. And you know, it's good to have a special place. Well, where's your special place? Remember the Lord Jesus said there in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6, and he, he says in verse 6, But when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Have you a familiar, favorite, frequent place where you can go and have rest and meditation and meet with God at a place where you can have prayer, especially as you face a crisis, because that's the context here. Notice quickly and secondly, Gethsemane is a place associated with pain. Now, young people, think of the name Gethsemane. That name Gethsemane actually means olive prayer. So I want you to think of a, a garden where there's olive trees and olive bushes, but there's also an olive press. Now I've seen the modern equivalents of the ancient olive press uh, during our time of visitation to the land of Israel. I want you to think of a, a grinding mill of granite stone. Uh, and the, the olives are put into it. And the upper stone uh, and the uh, lower stone both are turned. Uh, uh, and then the, the olives are crushed between the stones into a paste. And as they're crushed into a paste, they extract the purest olive oil. You've got to think of a bruising, crushing experience. Here's the Lord Jesus crossing this brook Kidron into what we call the Kidron Valley, a very deep ravine at the foot of the Mount of Olives, the eastern side of Jerusalem. He himself is in a valley experience, and we're going to see that a little deeper, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And maybe you're here this morning and the Lord has brought you into that valley experience already. Physically, you have been brought low. 
Your heart is heavy because of life's circumstances and situations. Maybe your mind's in turmoil. Maybe your body is weary and you're thinking, well, I can't go on. I can't take any more. Your suffering, your sorrow, your situation seems unbearable. Well, in light of that, I want you to think of the Lord Jesus. His suffering, his sorrow that night, his mental state, his agony of soul, the physical impact on the body as he comprehended and contemplated all the horrors of the cross the next day, experiencing the wrath of God the Father, experiencing the transmission of the load of the sins of his people placed in him, offering himself a willing once and for all sacrifice for his people, becoming their sin bearer, the attack in him that night by the powers of darkness. Think of it. Ponder it. You think of Gethsemane's experience for Christ. It was an experience of extreme and intense pain. I think of the forces of hell that were arrayed against him. I, I think of the power of darkness or the prince of darkness himself coming against the holy, blessed Son of God. And yet, here's the mystery. The Lord Jesus presented himself to this place of the olive press so that he too could be rolled under its weight. Two rollers, the upper and the lower stone, the olives crushed and pressed and bruised so the beautiful olive oil could flow forth. That's a picture of the Lord Jesus. All his suffering, all his sorrow, entering into death experience, so that he could bring forth new life. So that he could bring forth the oil of God's grace. The oil of God's salvation. What does the Lord Jesus do when he leaves the upper room? He makes a beeline to Gethsemane. Place of pain. Place of suffering. He knew that his hour had come. He knew what he was about to enter into. This was before his arrest. This was before his unjust trial. This was before his horrible death. He knew it all. And I want to say this morning, he wasn't a victim. I know we sang in that hymn, A Victim Led. I would rather the word was changed to a victor. He was not a victim. He was a victor. You see, he was a willing participant in it all. And you see, what you're going through right now, he knows it all. He understands because your suffering, your sorrow, your situation is a faint reflection of what he actually went through. And whatever you're going through in your body, whatever's going on in your home right now, whatever your specific set of circumstances is, he knows it. And not only that there, because he has died and rose again, he is the oil of grace for you. He can provide the uh, specific thing that you need to help you to get through this particular hour or this particular time. And I want you to see that. I want you to understand that. And it all happened in this favorite, familiar, frequented place. The oil press. He went through the oil press for you and me that we might have the oil of grace to cope with life and its circumstances. That's how Joseph coped. And the Lord was with him. Presence. 
the Lord's peace, the Lord's provision, the Lord's power, the Lord's purpose. 13 years in jail. It would take special grace for that. Think also of Gethsemane as a place associated with prayer. You see, whenever the Lord Jesus went into this place, and I believe he deliberately planned to enter into it, and he knew the pain and suffering that he would experience there, he said to his disciples at the start, if you look at the text, Mark 14, 32, and he said to his disciples, sit ye here while I shall pray. So he leaves eight at the gate. He takes three with them, Peter, James, and John, and he tells them to um, watch and pray lest they enter into temptation. Now, if you compare scripture with scripture, and we look at um, Luke, Luke chapter 22 and verse 40 would be a good uh, scripture. Uh, listen to these words. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He told him to pray. Why? Lest ye enter into temptation. You see, the disciples were in danger. In danger of what? I believe it wasn't just general. I believe it was something very specific. He told them to watch and pray lest they enter into temptation. What was that temptation? Think about it. This happened three times. He, he told them, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. He told them the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Watch and pray, that was his simple command. He left them for an hour and went away and prayed himself. And then he came back and he found them sleeping. And that happened not once, not twice, but it happened three times. They were overcome with sleep. They were sleeping instead of supplicating. You see, I believe the devil was at work. I believe the devil what was um, involved in this. Here's the disciples overcome with tiredness. And their, their willingness to pray was, was affected. And isn't that a real problem for us? Is prayerlessness not, not a sin? Did Samuel say, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord and cease to pray for you? Have we not been called to prayer privately? Publicly, think of the collective prayer meeting. Do you know that's the spiritual temperature of the church? That's the powerhouse of the church. And yet so few come. Many decide Wednesday night prayer meeting time, I'll stay at home. I'll do other things. I'm tired or, or, or other things come to the fore. And yet they may not realize it, but the devil could be at the back of that and most likely is to, to stop you coming to the time of prayer and the place of prayer but not only did the disciples receive this instruction watch and pray he said himself I will go yonder and pray and as I've said he prayed for three times three individual one hour slots and there's a lot of questions about what he said he prays three times we know from the scriptures Matthew 26 39 41 42 
Mark 14, verse 36 here, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Now, what did he pray? You see, some people say, well, that's very easy. He prayed to escape the cross. And you'll hear that in liberal modern churches. You might even hear it from the lips of some evangelicals. In other words, they say he was asking the Father if there's any other way to redeem sinners. He was asking God the Father to change his mind because his true humanity was recalling from the cross. Um, he wanted to accomplish redemption without the cross and without its agony and pain. And people argue, well, it's a natural outcome of a human being. It's a built-in antenna to avoid suffering and pain. But I want to tell you, it was not a prayer to avoid the cross. It wasn't a prayer for God to substitute his sufferings. Because the cross was predetermined. It was ordained from before the foundation of the world. Is Jesus Christ not the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world? The Lord Jesus was not wanting to forsake the cross. The Lord Jesus knew that the plan of redemption was not in jeopardy. It was forever settled in heaven. It was settled in eternity past. So it was not a prayer to escape the cross. What was it? It was a prayer to escape satanic conflict. You see, if you look at verse 34, there's the key. And he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. The horrors of death had laid hold on him. See, I believe the power of darkness was attacking him. This was an assassination attempt on his life in the Garden of Gethsemane by the devil. And if you turn over there to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, it says in verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. And this is the prayer life of Christ. He was asking the Father to deliver him through strong crying and prayer and, and tears to save him from death. And one of those situations was in the garden. Deliver me from death in the midst of this satanic conflict, Lord. It wasn't that he was praying to be delivered from wrath that was in God's cup. He was praying, deliver me from the wicked one. The wicked one's trying to kill me. Remember, he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. And yet all the while, as the horrors of death lay hold upon him, he submitted himself to the will of God. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And in this hour, or these three hours, I believe he got a, a sight, a full sight of the horror of Calvary. In that hour, he, he, he was brought to realize what the cross would mean, the absence of the Father. Cutting off from the Father's face and fellowship. The, the, the fullness of the Father's wrath. And that cup of wrath put to his lips and he was to drink it all. And yet the wonderful thing it is, according to the Bible, and if you look at Luke 22 and verse 43 again, we read something else about this incident. This is disputed by modern translations and modern translators. But listen to the word of God. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. He was strengthened not only by prayer, 
when he was strengthened by the angel. Now maybe if I press this home, you're facing a great trial in your life right now. And you've got a personal Gethsemane situation. And you're facing a real crushing experience. And you've felt the powers of darkness attacking you. And the pains of hell have got hold upon you. And you fear the darkness. And you fear the rage of the enemy. What do you do in that situation? What did the Lord Jesus do? He prayed. He cried to his heavenly father for help. To be kept safe. To be strengthened. And how speedily the Lord does and answer prayer. You know one of my favorite little prayers is help thou me. Three words. Are you facing an impossible situation right now? And you can see no way how that situation can be defeated and and turned to a victory. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. I believe The church must be called to prayer. But as an individual Christian, we must also be called to prayer. That we might rediscover this. God speedily does send help. But he says, ask and ye shall receive. And why do we not receive? Because we haven't asked. You see, Gethsemane is a place associated with prayer. And lastly, Gethsemane is associated with purpose. You see, Gethsemane means submission. It's the place of submission. Here's the Lord Jesus, and he's sorrowful. He's very heavy. He says, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Not just this was physically impacting his body, and I have no doubt his body was affected, but at this point, there's no nail in his hand, there's no lash in his back, there's no thorn in his brow, there's no spear in his side. The guards and Judas haven't arrived. And the Lord Jesus is entering into a spiritual battle with the forces of darkness. He's facing innumerable evils. And in this place that's familiar, a favorite place that is frequented often, where he had communion with his father, he realizes that this place is a place of fierce conflict with the foe. And there's specific suffering. And there's spiritual suffering, not just physical. The powers of darkness are at work. And there's a solitariness to this suffering because he went a little further. Think of the eight at the gate. They're told to wait, to pray. Three in the inner circle are told to watch and pray. And he himself, as Mark 14, 35 says, he went a little forward. Matthew 26 and 39 says he went a little further. Getting away from the rest. Specific, spiritual, solitary suffering. And all the while the Lord Jesus is in control. He's not a victim. He's a victor. Whenever the mob came to arrest him and he asked whom seekest thou, and they said Jesus of Nazareth, he said I am he. And what was their response? They fell backwards. Because he's in charge. He's mighty to save. A saviour who is all powerful. And he surrendered himself to them. It wasn't that they just came and arrested him and he fought and and there was a bit of a struggle. No, he he gave himself willingly and voluntarily to them. He said to Peter, put away thy sword for this hour has come. You see, he's in control. And let me say this as we finish. He is forever 
and always in control. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And you see, whatever he faced in those hours, Pilate, Herod, led as a lamb to the slaughter, drinking the cup of God's holy wrath in the tree, he was fulfilling a purpose. He had come to bring about life. The power of life is in his hands. He said, I'm come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. And you think of this as I finish. Think of the, the olive oil. It was useful for cooking. It was useful for healing. Travelers took it to soothe their muscles that were aching from the journey. Remember the good Samaritan used it to bind up the woods of the uh, man that was beaten and bruised and the road to uh, between Jerusalem and, and Jericho. It was used for lighting, uh, for, for lighting the lamps. You think of the power of life that comes from Christ. He can give peace in the midst of pain. He can give sweetness in the face of great suffering. You can have life from one who is Lord of glory. I was saddened this week as we finish when I heard of the death of a dear lady that was named in the paper called Margaret Lockray. She was 58. Eight years ago, she won £27 million in the lottery. I'm not advocating playing the lottery. The devil's at the back of it. But that dear lady, during all those eight years, while she gave away many millions to good causes and individual family and friends, she suffered mental health problems. She didn't have any peace. I think of another man called Adrian Bayford. In 2012, he won 148 million in the lottery. And I was thinking, what's the greatest treasure of all? Is it 148 million or 28 million? No. Surely for us it has to be the love of a husband or the love of a wife. A loving family that's interdependent and interrelated to each other. A few good close friends that you can count on. This is my friend. The fellowship of God's people. Having a true faith in Christ. Have you true faith in Christ? So that in your pain, in your suffering, in your life, you can have life from the risen Lord. You see, the measure of agony was measured by the depth of human sinfulness. The measure of agony, agony was measured by the depth of his love for sinners. The measure of his agony was measured by the fact that he died alone and the measure of the test is this that all human suffering peels into insignificance and I say that respectfully in light of his suffering because we're told in the Bible to follow in his steps will you follow his steps into Gethsemane this morning the place that was planned the place that was associated with pain, prayer, and yet with purpose. Because without this death experience, there'd be no power of life. Our life is in the risen Lord.
May the Lord take these few words and bless them to you this morning.